I'm Roma Agrawal. I'm a structural engineer, author, and host of this podcast, Building Stories, a brand new series that looks at the hidden stories behind our structures. In each episode, I'll be delving into the fascinating secrets behind some of the world's best-known buildings, bridges, and other structures, as well as some incredible feats of engineering that you may never have heard of. I'll also explore what's going on from different perspectives, looking closely at the materials, history and people that led to the existence of these structures with the help of some special guests. A few years ago, I travelled to Istanbul on holiday and I spent a lot of time looking at amazing attractions like the Hagia Sophia and the Blue Mosque. But one of the places that had been recommended to me actually had quite a nondescript entrance. And as I stood there, for a second I wondered whether it would actually be worth going in. I queued up anyway, thinking that if nothing else, I'd get away from the heat for a while. As the queue moved down the steps below ground level in the square, I suddenly ended up in this huge underground cavern, which actually overwhelmed me because it was strange. It was so beautiful, but in fact had a really practical purpose, which was simply to store water. I learned later that it had a really fascinating story behind it. So I asked Dr. Rebecca Dali from Birkbeck University in London to tell us a bit more. We certainly know that the Basilica Cistern, as it currently exists, was constructed probably immediately after 532, following the translation of the capital from Rome to Constantinople, which was on the site of the previous city of Byzantium, hence the name that is later invented for it. She has a PhD in Byzantine studies, which is the era in which this structure was built. So the first thing I wanted to know was a bit more about this period in history. The term Byzantine is invented in the Renaissance in Western Europe as a way for scholars to describe the Roman Empire as it survived after the Roman Empire in the West collapsed from the 5th century onwards. And so the people who lived in this empire never thought of themselves as Byzantine. They considered themselves to be Roman. The Basilica Cistern is located really at the heart of this new capital that is constructed on the site of an old city. Um, it's southwest of the Hagia Sophia, um, the Church of Holy Wisdom. And adjacent to the Hagia Sophia was the Great Palace, the seat of the emperors. So we should think about the cistern as being part of this palatial complex that is the civic centre of the entire empire. It's called the Basilica Cistern because originally from the 3rd or 4th century, the site that it now occupies had a basilica on top of it. The term cistern is usually used to refer to any underground constructed water storage area. These are very, very common across the Middle East in antiquity and late antiquity. The Basilica Cistern is one of several hundred cisterns ranging in size um, across the city of Istanbul. It is, however, one of the largest with a capacity of around 80,000 cubic metres of water. Water is a really fundamental requirement for humans. In fact, we can't survive longer than three days without it. We humans need easily accessible fresh water if we are to survive. 
But here's the problem. We don't actually have much of this. If all the water on our planet was represented as an area the size of a soccer pitch, then the freshwater lakes on the planet's surface would be as large as the cushion I have on my sofa, whilst the surface rivers would fit inside a little coaster that I use under my tea. So this makes finding fresh water hard enough. And that's why so many of our ancient towns were founded on the banks of a river. But as these towns grew into cities, as fields growing crops became vast, and as we migrated to live further and further away from water sources, we had to find water. We had to move it. And we also needed to store it. Now, while creating a space to store water might seem like a simple thing to make, in truth, the biggest cisterns, like the Basilica cistern, are in fact impressive feats of engineering. It's really quite a dramatic space now when you go into it. And I think when you look at the space, it's hard not to think that it was built to be appreciated. There's great care that's gone into the finish of it. It's supplied by water coming in from about 19 kilometres outside of Constantinople and would have flowed in through two aqueducts, one built by the Emperor Valens in the 4th century um, and the other constructed by the Emperor Justinian. These days, it's managed by the Istanbul City Council as a tourist site, and they've done a fantastic job creating walkways through it. So you walk down, there's usually some atmospheric music in the background, lots of uplighting, so it has this really quite powerful effect as you go down to it. It's one of two places I go back to every single time I'm in Istanbul, the Hagia Sophia and the Basilica Cistern. Um, but every time I do, I'm struck by stepping out of the light and usually the heat into this very cool, dark space. And as your eyes adjust, you begin to see the columns stepping out into the gloom. And there are a total of 336 marble columns in 12 rows of 28. So as you stand there and look out, it really is this feeling of being in a forest of underground stones. Um, the first time I went down there, you could also hear water dripping into what was a pool on the bottom full of large carp that I assume had been living in it since the 1980s when it had last been renovated. And you can walk through and examine some of the, the more special um, capitals and column bases. The walls are approximately four metres thick. Um, the whole interior is coated in waterproof mortar and it's a construction using um, fired bricks. And then the columns recycled from other places to hold up a cross-vaulted ceiling. They're also called quadripartite arches, which are sort of domes made up of arches that intersect each other. The bricks that you see in this cistern were quite typical of the Roman bricks of the time, which are much larger and flatter than the bricks we're used to today. The reason for this was in order for them to be as strong as possible, it was important that they dried out evenly. The flat bricks meant that moisture didn't get trapped in the middle of the clay. Almost all of the columns in the cistern are recycled from other places, and we can see from the different styles, the different capitals, um, that they're not recycled from the same place. They're very much cobbled together from the resources in the city. And some of them are extremely finely decorated. Uh, there are, for example, some that have... It's actually quite a common pattern on um, late antique columns. It's sometimes referred to as an eye pattern. Uh, but these columns are 
probably upside down, which means that these eye patterns end up looking like either liquid drops or teardrops, as if the columns are weeping. And this has led to the urban legend that these columns were erected in memory of the tears of the 7,000 slaves who died constructing the system. Uh, This is almost certainly not rooted in any secure historical tradition, but it certainly is true that the columns are very visually striking in this damp environment as you see the water coming down them. Um, And then there are also the Medusa columns, which are probably two of the most famous artefacts within um, the cistern. These are very large, um, approximately five feet high, squared lumps of stone which have on one face of them the image of the Medusa, um, the Gorgon's head. We have no idea where these came from, what their original context would have been. They're certainly startlingly massive. You can stand alongside them and it's quite bizarre standing in front of a face that's as tall as you are. And a lot has been written about what these are doing here, whether or not they've been placed, for example, on their side so that you don't have to look at the Gorgon's head. Again, you can see how urban legend develops around any space like this. It's far more likely, in fact, that the Gorgon's head that is on its side in particular is on its side because that way up it was the right height to get the column above it to be the height that it needed to be to construct that part of the cistern roof. But I think you really see in the interaction of the columns and these Medusa's heads this slightly strange, I think to modern eyes, combination of pragmatism and aesthetics. The Basilica cistern serviced the Great Palace, the residence of the Roman emperors, until they moved away. And after that, it was forgotten to the rest of the world. Rebecca tells us a bit more about its rediscovery. It's not until a Dutch traveller in 1544 comes to the city and goes looking for the remains of the Byzantine past that he took a boat down and investigated the cistern in a way that was recorded in a scholarly fashion for the first time. And after that, we start to see a revival of interest in the cistern. So it's then renovated twice after... Turkish independence in the early 20th century, um, undergoing another sequence of renovations that see it now um, as one of Istanbul's leading tourist attractions. I really strongly recommend that you visit the cistern if you find yourself in Istanbul. It stands out in my memory of my time there. And I guess the producers of an older James Bond film agreed with me, as it was featured in the movie From Russia with Love. When we build, it's vital that the materials we choose enable the structure to fulfil its purpose. In the beginning, humans built from materials that nature provided around them, which included trees and animal skins. And of course, many of our earliest homes were made from mud. As we developed tools and became more innovative and daring, we shaped this mud into rectangular cuboids using wooden moulds. Then we dried this mud in the sun, which made it stronger, and humans had created the brick. In an expanse of desert in the Middle East, around 9000 BC, residents of the ancient city of Jericho baked hand-moulded flat pieces of clay in the sun and built homes in the shape of beehives. In about 2900 BC, the Indus Valley civilization was building structures using bricks baked in kilns. And as we've heard, the Romans used fired bricks to build their most famous structures. 
What fascinates me about clay is that it's a really fundamental old material that we still use today. In fact, the clay that we use to make bricks, at least in the UK, is over 50 million years old. I really wanted to learn more about this material, clay, which has played and still does play such a vital role in the construction of our society. So I met up with Darren Ellis, who is a potter and clay expert at the Institute of Making at University College London. Right, so you, you've got a big lump of clay there. Yeah, so what we've got to do, whenever we're working with clay, and it should be across like fields in terms of hand-building, sculpture, um, throwing, whatever, we, we need to make our clay even. So the, the two problems that are going to come when we're working with clay is air bubbles and unevenness. So this process, it's a way of um, it's wedging the clay. Okay. So what we're doing is creating layers. And if you think about like pastry, yeah. so like croissants and things like that, we want to cross the layers millions of times, and that blends it. And then the other thing we want to do is get out air bubbles. So it needs a little bit of preparation. That's fascinating. And from, from my kind of um, layperson's perspective, in a sense, it, it does very much remind me of watching people make, the, you know, phyllo pastry, whatever it is, yeah, on, on yeah, the bake-off. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's layering, yeah. Layers. But tell me a bit about, okay, let, I mean, let's start with a really basic question. You know, what is clay? It's basically it's decomposed rock or decomposed granite. Um, so this happens through, say, like weathering, or it could be um, heat from underneath the Earth's core, or it could be chemical processes. There's different ways depending on what it is. Um, but it's a material that is, it's something that the Earth will never run out of. Basically, after a rock is formed or was formed, you've got hundreds, or if not thousands, of years before it can turn to clay. Um, so. It's a consistent process, basically. And even if we were all making pots all day, every day, we, we couldn't run out. So can, are there dinosaurs, molecules from dinosaurs in, in the stuff you're playing with I at mean, the moment? I mean, there could be. I mean, <laughs> you only have to look at, like, a marble floor, don't you? And you can see that um, certain tiles and marble floors and where they cut, you can see fossils and things in there. So there are things in this. I mean, when the clay is made, like, these clays have come from stock. It's you know, the, the main um, hub of the UK of where, like, um, ceramics is. It was at one part, main part of the world where we got... Uh, so is it mined there? Do they have to kind of go no, into the no, ground No, it's mined, it it's mined all over. Geographically, yeah. clay is quite interesting. Um, you've got areas of the... Throughout the UK and a big stretch of America where we have something called ball clay. There's no, like, technical word. It is just literally ball clay. And it's something that is very plastic. This is high in ball clay. This is, with the colour from this, I can tell it's probably AT ball clay. Um, so it's very plastic in quality. It stretches. We can roll out a sausage and we can bend it and it just bends. It doesn't break. Mm, so it's not um, a brittle material. So it's not so brittle. brittle talking is, it yeah. means it cracks or... It, it, yeah. If, if, we, if we think about the word plastic, like... It, origins is a descriptive word we just use it in like modern day materials mm. as a plastic um, clay is described for how good it is it's plastic um, like it's basically it's plasticity and it's qualities in that sense and how we can use it different clays have different things and we, we adapt them we can add more sand we can add more grog if we look at red clay like terracotta um, normally in the ground it's going to come out like bright yellow um, that is very plastic, it's really, really plastic. Um, but if you were to go different parts of the world, if we look at places like um, Korea, China, Japan, excluding porcelain in this, their clays, they don't geographically have bowl clay. 
So it's different types of clay. So if you went to Japan and I give you the same piece of their local clay and you rolled it in a sausage and bend it, it would just snap. Right. And that, what's always fascinated me is when we work with clay, if we look at um, just simply the dining set from medieval times to current day, England, Europe, America, big plates because we've got this clay that can almost like stretch mm. it's plastic qualities allows us to make these big things but then if we go to japan china korea you'll notice we've got these tiny little plates and these little bowls and we serve it differently it's, a, it's interesting to look at what the clay allows you to do mm. and has that been that that big influence they couldn't make big when it is big it's like there's different techniques and methods could you tell us a bit about how the history of the brick has led to what we do today yeah we, we i mean if we go if we go real, you know, really far back, um, pretty much since humans have been around, we've been we've been building huts from clay. So, um, what we'd think of like cob houses now. So we've gone from like, you know, mud bricks. We're adding straw. We're adding um, sand, and we're creating these structures and things like that. Don't know which came first in terms of the brick or just the big cob structures, but if we look at, at what the Romans did in terms of structure, they're creating those bricks creating those regular shapes you know they, they brought us the domes the arches all that kind of stuff um so there's a real kind of path um like it's almost like it's just a human evolution if you like yeah so talking about the romans then as one of the civilizations um that we're obviously looking at for the basilica cistern in this episode mm. i've written about um vitruvius's recipe for a brick back yeah. in roman times and one of the biggest things he talks about is how slowly that you need to dry it yeah and you know just allow the moisture to be consistent throughout the thickness of the brick and i think that's one of the reasons the romans actually made their bricks quite flat because they got a more consistent dry quicker. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah drying process out of it right yeah obviously there's two good ways of drying things out one is heat but we don't want to heat too quickly which I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment. Um, the second is th probably the best thing to um, dry out clay is movement of air. Um, okay. So it can be cold, but it could be quite windy and cold, and things will dry quite quickly in that sense. Um, so we, once it's dry, um, we are going to look at something that visually to us is absolutely bone dry. It's fine. It's good. It, we can fire it, no problem at all. Within that material, we still have chemical moisture present. We still have hydrogen, we still have oxygen. And when we get to, when we put it into a kiln to fire it, so when we fire it, we're going to turn it from clay to ceramic. We're almost creating a new material. What we look at inside the clay is we, we've got elements of, the, of what's in there melting and then fusing. Um, so we can, it's similar to like glass, if you like, mm. but obviously we're, we're higher temperatures within clay. We have effectively got powdered rock and you know things like that in there but they when they're smaller they do start to melt and fuse back together it's now structurally much different it, it's come, you know all these elements and things have combined yeah. together so there's a fusion of these a particles fusion, yeah. of the silica i think in the sand yeah. starts to fuse together and then that's what gives it this kind of ceramic properties yeah, yeah. rather than so we the got rock yeah properties. so now we've got a different material so if we were to take pieces of um ceramics that are um, that have been fired maybe as little as 500 or 800 or whatever um we can smash them up all we like we'll just get smaller and smaller pieces but we can't use that as this kind of plastic flexible material yeah. anymore it's a, it's a different it's a different material and and presumably this ceramic this kind of fused almost glass like material is stronger than a yeah. dried piece because that's that for me was the big turning point in the brick history mm. was when we went from just drying them in the sun um, it's when we started 
actually firing these bricks in kiln, changing their properties, yeah. that we found that oh wow, they're a lot stronger and they can yeah. take a huge more amount of force it's, for our structures. Yeah, it's it's such a durable material um, to an extent. Obviously, if I was to fire um, um, a mug, which is three or four millimetres thick on the wall, yes, it's really hard. We can't scratch it. We can't penetrate in that way. But we can drop it or hit it and it will shatter. Mm. But then if we scale that up, so now we're not on something that's five millimetres. We're now on a bit a brick, which would be... I mean, like 100 yeah, by 70 or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is much more durable. It can take more impact. And then as we can build them and combine them together, we just create solid mass, basically. Yeah. That's effectively what we do. So got. I have a nice fact for you. Um, a typical brick that we make in the UK can take the weight of five elephants wow. stood on top of each other. That's incredible. Yeah. It's so pretty strong stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's quite amazing. <laughs> there is also interesting elements to look at as well. So the Roman bricks, they started to stamp them. They did. They did. This was probably for quality or for location where to get and those bricks. And it was bricks. also, I think, for when they made them so that they would know... Because I think they used to say that it would actually take a number of years before right. the bricks actually reached their full strength and had dried out the right amount. Yeah. And, and it is amazing because they have found Roman stamped bricks um, in Syria and oh, wow. in Germany and North Africa. So, yeah. I mean, it really does kind of... I mean, I, I love that this material illustrates you know the the vastness of this empire it's incredible yeah yeah and because i mean i find it really fascinating for example that bricks have been around for about ten thousand years i think is is what we think the earliest brick structures were yeah um, and we still use them and and i always kind of find it really amusing that we talk about all this new technology and modern methods of building and all this all this kind of stuff what we're doing then is watching robots assembling bricks. Yeah. And I always think it's a 10,000-year-old technology being built by a kind of futuristic technology. Maybe we'll, it will all just be robots. I mean, really, would anybody <laughs> want to be lugging around 10 tons of clay every other day? Probably not. But I think but that's we'll, what you do. <laughs> true, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't argue that. <laughs> it's a good point. Do you think we'll still be building with bricks in 10,000 years? Mm, difficult. It depends on... No building is just going to be a thing. It's always components put together. And it's whether those components start off really small in terms of a brick to if it's like large panels. I mean, we do start to, in any kind of, whether it's clothes or pottery or whatever, we do tend to look back at things, how things were done, and we like the aesthetics of that. And all, we get these fashions that recycle. Mm. We're probably not going to get that type of architecture again, the, the sculpted parts, the, the carved stone and things like that. Maybe people will want it, and then a robot can just carve <laughs> it out. You know, their skills still get lost. But I, I can't see, personally, bricks disappearing. Well, so Darren, I, I've really enjoyed my time here. And it's just, it's been an absolute pleasure just watching you working with this really tactile, beautiful material. Yeah, it's nice to express my passion in the material and let people know all these little stories and things that I pick up from, from my interests. Looking at clay has taken us on a journey through time, through geography, and through all kinds of different civilizations. Clay is a fundamental part of the way humans build and was a fundamental part in creating a storage system for water in the Basilica cistern. Without water, we can't live. But also without water, 
we couldn't make the clay that made the brick that enables us to store that water in the first place. Thank you so much to my guests for this episode, Dr. Rebecca Darley. You can find out more about her work on the Birkbeck University website. And Darren Ellis. You can check out his website at www.darrenellispottery.com. And he's also on Facebook and Instagram as Darren Ellis Pottery. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you go back and listen to my other two episodes of Building Stories. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Folded Wing production. Thank you to Dilesh Haria for my theme music. I've been your host, Roma Agrawal. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Roma the Engineer. And my website is romatheengineer.com. You can find more info, pictures and other exciting stuff from this podcast on our Instagram and Twitter pages. Just search at buildingstpod. Our website is www.buildingstoriespodcast.com. Please subscribe to Building Stories and leave a review. It really helps us spread the word. This has been the third of three pilot episodes. I hope to be back very soon with more Building Stories. This episode of Building Stories was made possible with help from the Institution of Structural Engineers, or iStructD, and Roma the Engineer Limited. The iStructD website features great resources, including unique learning tools like their technical guidance notes. You can also find out about the benefits of student membership, which is an invaluable first step towards a professional career as a structural engineer. If you're enjoying the Building Stories podcast, you'll hopefully like my book Built. Learn more about the hidden stories behind our structures, now available in paperback and available from all good bookstores.